All right, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, picking up in verse number 12. In case that seems a little bit uh, random to you, just to remind you, for those who weren't here last Wednesday, uh, we're doing a series in 1 Peter in Sunday school in the class that I teach, and we're running out of Sundays in this quarter to get through the book. So since I was asked to preach a couple Wednesdays, I thought, well, that's perfect. That will just fill in the, the, the passages that we would have gotten to, and so that's, that's why we're in 1 Peter. So... And if you want to know the rest of the story, you've got to come to my Sunday school class on Sunday. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 12. Starting in verse number 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator." So in this passage, we have one of the two mentions of the word Christian in the Bible. It always was a surprise to me when I first discovered that, that the word Christian isn't all over the Bible. And uh, so it's used in Acts when the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians, and we find it uh, used here again. And, uh, and so even though it's become a very common term uh, in our day today, uh, the meaning of the term is probably more confused than ever. If you went to downtown Lebanon and asked 100 people to define what it means to be a Christian, you'd probably get almost 100 different answers, or at least a, probably a good variety of answers. Um, so stemming from, you know, just trying to follow Jesus' example, to just being a good person, to having been baptized. I was baptized as a baby, and so therefore I'm a Christian. And, you know, I go to church. My name, name's on a membership roll somewhere. And uh, so there would be a lot of different definitions that would be, that would be given. Um, it's certainly instructive to look at other names that are given to believers in the New Testament. Uh, for example, they, the, probably the most common term in the New Testament is disciples, which means followers of Christ. Uh, also, we're called children of God. Uh, we, receive, we receive the name of saints, which is always hard to imagine that, that we could actually bear that name. Uh, soldiers, or again, servants. And when you look at the different names, it becomes more clear what the word Christian actually stands for. Um, in one passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it defines Christians in this way. It says, they are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is a pretty powerful definition. And... Um, but tonight, we're not going to be focusing so much on what the name Christian means, but rather what the name of Christian can cost us. 
Because as a believer seeks to truly be a Christian, not just in name, but in living out their faith, there is a cost that comes with that. And that is specifically what Peter is looking at in this particular text here tonight. And so as perhaps many of you know, uh, with the, if you're at all aware of the persecuted church around the world, Christians who are persecuted for their faith, um, Christians world around and, and many, many nations are reproached and suffer for the name of Christ. And so um, Jesus himself anticipated that uh, because of that cost to be paid, some believers would be tempted to draw back. Some, temp- some believers would be tempted maybe to, to compromise so as not to have to face reproach or rejection or, or suffering. And he kind of anticipated that in the parable that he told of the sower and the seed. And he said this about, he said, but he who received the stone, I'm sorry, he who received the seed in stony places This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And so what's abundantly clear throughout the New Testament is that the Christian life, that is one who desires to truly live as a disciple, as a soldier, as a servant of Christ, The Christian life is not easy. As Christians, we've made the choice to follow Christ, and we ought to proudly bear the name of Christ. But again, we need to know that there's going to be a cost associated with that. And so the challenge before us tonight is may each of us accept both the honor and the reproach that goes with the name Christian. Now, why is that? Why do we need to be willing to accept both the honor and the reproach? Well, first of all, because the true disciple of Christ will be tested. Verses 12 and 13, Peter puts us on, on notice here. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though something strange, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice. So, Peter makes it clear that it is the normal situation for a Christian to face some level of uh, reproach, of persecution, of rejection. He actually uses the phrase here, uh, the fiery trial, which is to try your faith. And uh, as we go through this, we're going to see there's three times where Peter uh, refers to the suffering, uh, persecution that Christian faith face, and the attitude that the Christian should have. We're going to see this three different times. And in each case, we're going to consider three examples that I hope will encourage us to to press on, to stand firm, to remain faithful. And so when I was looking at this phrase, the fiery trial, my mind just immediately went to those three Hebrew children uh, back in the book of Daniel who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And you guys know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, carried away captive at a young age, Uh, by the Babylonians, but even in their youth, along with their good friend Daniel, um, made clear, uh, took a clear stand for their faith in God. And so when Nebuchadnezzar built a statue and required everybody to bow down and worship it uh, under punishment of death, these three friends of Daniel would not be intimidated. 
And so they were settled in their commitment. They were settled in their heart. They knew in whom they had believed, and they preferred to die rather than to dishonor God. That's quite a statement. We have a hard time measuring that here in America. You know that? We really do because we don't face it. It's hard to put ourselves in that context if, you know, if tomorrow somebody came to your door, put a gun in your forehead and said, renounce Christ or die. I mean, I know we'd all like to think and hope we would say, I'm going to stay faithful to my Lord, but it's hard to appreciate what, uh, what a challenge that would be for our faith. But God did honor the faith of these three young men and granted a miraculous deliverance. Somebody in talking about that story said about those three young men, it says they would not budge, they would not bow, and they would not burn. <laughs> and so even when they were cast into the fiery furnace, it was God himself, uh, Jesus Christ rather, who visited them there and who brought them safely out of it. But Peter adds here that we should not be surprised when we're tested in that way. I mean, that seems like a really extreme example, and yet like we're going to see, it's not all that extreme or all that unusual. In fact, it is the exception when we are not tested. Okay? It's the exception when we're not tested. Honestly, I believe our generation has been uh, incredibly privileged in that sense here in America. Our generation here in America, we have, had, uh, we have had faced few tests for our faith, anything like those um, in other nations or in the, in the past. The Bible says that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution in some form to some extent. And so what is the attitude that we're to manifest when we are tested, when we are put to the test? What kind of attitude should we have? Well, Peter makes it real clear in verse number 13. He says, when this thing happens to you, he says, rejoice. Now, you know, that has to be one of the most unexpected statements in the Bible. Okay, that when we are being sorely tested for our faith, even to the point of maybe facing death, facing some severe form of persecution, Peter says we are to rejoice. Now, you know, honestly, at best, when trials come, uh, you know, we try to muster up enough strength to endure them or to, you know, get through them. Uh, oftentimes when we pray, our prayer is, God, take this trial away right? Oftentimes when we pray for those who are sick, our main request is, God, take the you know, sickness away. You know, heal this person. And, there, and that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. But we sometimes forget that sometimes God has a purpose in the trial, even in the sickness, and we often forget to pray for that as well. And so a lot of times our attitude when we face trials is, you know, if we're talking to somebody else, we'll use phrases like, well, just hang in there, you know, uh, don't give up hope you know, um, be strong. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when we face trials, and in particular when it comes to being tried for our faith, he says our attitude is to be one of rejoicing, which actually goes along with what James says, right, in James chapter 1 when he talks about trials. He says, count it all joy. And then Peter reminds us in verse number 14, um, verse number 13, he says, Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So he says, if we, if we are able to persevere through trials, 
with a rejoicing attitude, he says, when Christ appears, we will even have an abundance of joy at that moment because of how we faithfully faced the tests that were brought into our life. Um, so what's the reason for this attitude? How, how is it even possible? I mean, honestly, this, this does touch on what seems to be the realm of the, you know, the ideal, the wishful thinking. But is this reality? You know, how can a Christian rejoice in severe suffering, in severe persecution? And Peter gives us some reasons here in the text. Um, one of them would be this. Uh, we know that trials, and this isn't necessarily in this text in Peter, but elsewhere in the Bible, but we know that trials are meant to be beneficial. And one of the primary reasons for that is because they do cause us to turn to God and to rely more on Him, which is a very good thing. And so we all know that, that when everything's going well, we don't necessarily turn to God or really cling to God, trust God to the same extent as when we're facing trials of different natures. And so it's a good thing in a sense that trials come because it does generally cause us to turn to Christ. Um, you know, there's always the danger, just like when the, the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm came and he was sleeping and, uh, and you know, they took their eyes off of Christ. If they just looked at him, you know, focused on what he was doing, they would have known that they could have been calm. They could have been uh, trusting. They could have been at peace. Instead, they looked at the circumstances around them, and be, they became fraught with anxiety and, and panicked, you know. And um, all of us can, can have that same uh, uh, wrong reaction to trials. Instead of focusing on Christ, focusing on the problem itself, you know, what am I going to do? How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to get through this? Um, and, uh, and lose our focus on Christ because it's Him and Him alone, of course, that can give us the peace of mind and the strength to make it through and even the joy to be able to accept that trial as knowing that God is seeking to accomplish something through that. But there's another reason that Peter specifically mentions in the text here, which is he says that trials allow us to partake at least to a certain degree in Christ's sufferings. See that in verse, four, in verse 13? He says, Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a, you know, a, a beneficial thing right away, but the text seems to want to tell us that by tasting even a small part of what Christ had to go through for our salvation... Just thinking about that, being able to appreciate that because of the personal suffering that we're facing, it reminds us how much Christ loves us. Again, knowing that the suffering that we face is, is going to be nothing compared to what Jesus went through, right? So even tasting just a bit of that and realizing how hard it is to make it through those trials shows us again how much Christ loves us, that he would have gone through such great suffering, extreme suffering, in order to save us. And because he has already demonstrated that love for us, again, it should strengthen our faith. It should allow us to be able to truly rest in him, to trust him through the trial that we're facing. So, first of all, Peter refers to the, the fact that Christians will be tested. He says that the reaction, the attitude that we're supposed to have is one of rejoicing. 
Let's go on to a second reason why we need to accept the reproach that comes with the name of Christ. Peter says, number two, because the Christian will be reproached himself for the name of Christ. And so in verses 14 and 15, he says, But if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's evil spoken of, but on your part he's glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, as a busybody, and other men's matters. All right, so first of all, as he talks about what it means to be reproached for the name of Christ, well, we have the example of Jesus himself who was reproached. Um, in fact, when the Bible talks about it, there's passages not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, of course, that describe the sufferings of Christ. And so in Isaiah, for example, the prophet Isaiah, in talking about Jesus, says he was despised, despised, and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows. That's how his life was described, okay? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Gospels go on to describe in detail how he was rejected, mocked, beaten, brutally whipped, and finally crucified. But Peter goes on to add um, in his epistle here that when uh, Jesus was being blasphemed against and was even being tortured, he did not say a single threatening word in response. Instead, he committed himself to his father and prayed for his persecutors. And so Peter says, in doing so, he has left us the perfect example to follow when we are called upon to bear reproach for his name. Okay, that's what Peter describes in chapter 2 of his book here, okay? And um, so we have the example of Jesus himself when he was being insulted and reproached. Now, you know, if there was ever anybody that was completely undeserving of being treated that way, it would be Jesus. For us, you know, there's, there's always some, you know, we're not perfect, so whenever we're reproached, it might be partly because we're a Christian, but it's also because sometimes we don't handle ourselves or conduct ourselves or, or speak exactly like we ought to. But if there was somebody that didn't deserve a word of reproach, it was Jesus. And so he's given by Peter as an example to follow. And so then Peter says, so what should our attitude be when we are reproached, when we are insulted, when we are despised, when we are rejected by others because of our faith. Notice what he says in verse number 14. If you reproach for the name of Christ, happy are you. So first he says, if you're being tried for your faith, you're supposed to rejoice. Now he says, if you're being blasphemed and reproached, you're supposed to be happy about it. <laughs> Is that possible? Another surprising statement by the Apostle Peter. Um, now, to avoid any confusion, Peter adds right away in verse number 15, he says, listen, now, of course, as a Christian, you shouldn't be reproached for having behaved badly. So he just gives a couple examples here. He says, you know, of course, no Christian should be a murderer or should even be a meddler, okay, a busybody, a gossip, etc. Um, but he says, but in those cases where people say bad things about us, simply because we're seeking to live out our faith, simply because perhaps we're sharing the truth of God's word or we're witnessing, he says, then we need to have the attitude where we are actually happy for this reproach that we're receiving in the name of Christ. Now, the, the problem here is that is the very moment where certain Christians are going to draw back. 
We're okay with witnessing. We're all okay with talking about God until somebody reproaches us, somebody rebukes us, somebody despises us, somebody rejects us, and then the temptation is to draw back, right? The temptation is to say, well, I'm not going to bring it up anymore if that's the you know, way people are going to handle it. I remember this one couple uh, that we had met in France and uh, two Christians that were fairly, you know, fairly solid Christians, but um, they shared the story how as fairly young believers, they had some friends over to their house for a meal one, one day, and uh, it was in their own home, right? And so the friends were unsaved, and their desire was to talk to them about the Lord. And, uh, but they knew that they were unbelievers, atheists. And so before the meal, they, they said, well, we're going to say grace. And so they bowed their heads, the Christians bowed their head, and began to pray. Well, I think even before they were done with the prayer, the, 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 their guests stood up. And as soon as they finished the prayer, the guests rebuked them for praying in their own home, <laughs> you know, before the meal. They said, you know we're not believers, you know, why would you be forcing this down our throat or whatever? And, um, I mean, but really kind of exploded. And um, so this Christian couple told me this. They said, so we decided from that point on that when we're around unbelievers, we won't pray, we won't, you know, make mention of God because we don't want to have another scene like that. I thought to myself, I didn't think about it. We actually talked about it. I said, that's not the right, that's not the right response. Um, that's not the biblical response anyway. Um, and so, again, there's the temptation, and all of us face it. I face it, okay, that we draw back and just say, well, I'll just try to be a silent witness for Christ, you know. Uh, I'll just have to just pray and ask God to, you know, uh, whatever, you know, change the whole situation. Have them ask me how to be saved. Whatever it is, Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not the answer. The answer is continue to be faithful, but you can be happy that you are being reproached for the name of Christ. And so the reason he gives for this attitude that we can have is, first of all, he says, as we take a stand for Christ and boldly proclaim his name, we are in fact exalting him. And people see Christ through us, and so much the more when we're willing to pay a price for being a Christian, for living out our faith. Just last night, I was talking to a gentleman, a, a friend, an acquaintance, who um, about a year or so ago, when I was witnessing to him, he, he shot me down. He, he, he kind of blew up and, and, and shouted me down and uh, said I shouldn't be talking about that to him. And... Um, uh, you know, we see each other occasionally, and I've had other opportunities to try to talk to him and so forth. And, and um, the last night, he, he asked if he could talk to me. And as we went aside and we're talking, he said, you know, I, I'm, I need to ask you to pray. And he shared some things in his family that are going on. And he recognizes because he had turned his back to God. And so I thought it was very interesting that the, first, that the same person who he told to shut up about speaking about God, he now came to to ask for prayer and help. So, yes, people are taking notice that we're willing to suffer reproach for Christ's name. That is a powerful testimony. But also, Peter says something else here in the text. He says, um, in verse 14, he says, if you, reproach, if you reproach for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's a, that's a fantastic statement there. It seems that the spirit of God works in a particular fashion. It's like God gives special grace when we are facing trials and tests for his name. 
when a Christian takes a stand and seeks to be a bold witness for Christ and is, is suffering for it, being persecuted for it, it's like God gives special grace. He says that, he says that the, the, um, the glory uh, of this, I'm sorry, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Um, it made me think, I, I read, um, I don't know if all of you have ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've, if you've never read that book, I would really strongly encourage it. But anyway, Fox's Book of Martyrs recounts different Christians over, the, over history that have suffered for their faith. But here's one testimony that I read. It says this, Theodorus, a Christian who lived in 360 A.D., Theodorus, for singing praise to God, was apprehended and put to the rack, though not to death. After being taken down off the rack, he was asked how he could so patiently endure such tortures, to which he returned this remarkable reply. He says, At first I felt some pain, but afterwards there appeared to stand by me a young man who wiped the sweat from my face and frequently refreshed me with cold water, which so delighted me that I regretted being let down off the rack. I don't know how that works, okay? I've never been put on a rack, so I've never experienced that kind of, you know, divine intervention. But I do believe that God does give needed grace in those hours of trial. In fact, the same testimony that Paul gives in Corinthians when he talks about that thorn in the flesh, whatever that was exactly, but he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he he experienced the power of Christ in a different way because of the trial that he was facing and going through in his life. So Peter has now given two reasons why we should uh, accept the reproach of Christ um, as well as the honor that goes with that name. He gives a third reason now, number three in your notes, because we as Christians may be called upon to suffer. Twice Peter envisions a possibility. Verse 16, he says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And then verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and while doing us unto a faithful creator. So Peter envisions the very distinct possibility that Christians will indeed face suffering. Now, again, that flies in the face of, you know, the prosperity gospels that are very popular today. Um, They would do well to read these very verses, okay, that remind us that it can be perfectly in God's will for a believer to face suffering, face persecution, face trials. Let me share an example. I put part of it in your notes there, a fairly recent example of Christians who indeed were, who were called to suffer as they sought to faithfully serve the Lord. Uh, Three faithful servants of God in the country of Turkey, um, the city where this took place was actually about 300 miles from the city of Antioch where believers were first called Christians. And um, on April 18, 2007, a man by the name of Tillman Geski, he was a German missionary living in Turkey, Uh, A man by the name of Nakadi Aden, who was a Turkish pastor and father, and another Turkish pastor by the name of Ugar Yüksel, were savagely killed by a group of 10 extremist Muslims. Now, just several days prior, five of those Muslims had attended an evangelical meeting organized by those same uh, Christian pastors um, in a conference room in a downtown hotel. So, 
five of the young Muslims had gone to the service and had listened to the preaching of the Word of God that was delivered that night. No one knows what took place in their heart, if they were under conviction by the Holy Spirit, if they were troubled because of the sin, but of their sin. But whatever it was, instead of accepting the gospel, they became hardened in their hearts. And so on the morning of April 18th, these 10 young men entered into the office of Tillman Geske. They knew where his office was. I guess they had maybe been there before. And so they showed up at his office, and they thought, the three, the three preachers that were there, thought they were coming to talk more about the gospel that they had just heard a couple nights before at that meeting. So they led him into the office. Well, instead, these 10 young Muslims tied and bound the three preachers, and then they proceeded to torture them for three hours. Tillman was stabbed a total of 156 times. Nakedi received 99 knife wounds, and the cuts on Uger's body were too numerous to count. Two of the men were almost beheaded. All three of them died as a result of their wounds. Now, that is a gruesome, horrendous uh, event, and yet it's not unusual. It's not exceptional. Every year, every year, there are tens of thousands of Christians who die for their faith. And so what is the attitude that we're to have if indeed in the will of God we are called to suffer? Eh bien, eh bien. <laughs> it's French. Uh, in verse 16, Peter says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So first we're to rejoice in trials, then we're to be happy for reproach for Christ. Now Peter says we're supposed to glorify God if we're suffering for him. Again, hard to even imagine how that can be possible. And yet the wives of those Turkish martyrs speak so eloquently. The wife of one of them, the wife of Nakedi, made this statement, this public statement. She said, my husband's death took on great meaning because he died for Christ just as he lived for Christ. Nikadi was a gift from God. I feel honored to have had him in my life. I feel crowned with honor. I wish to be worthy of this honor. Wow. And then Tillman's wife, in a television interview, stated publicly that she forgave her husband's murderers. She stated to the reporters that were gathered there, she said, Oh God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Upon hearing that testimony, one of the reporters made this statement. He said, With that one phrase, she said more than what 1,000 missionaries could say in 1,000 years. And so it's amazing to read the accounts of believers around the world who are persecuted for the faith and who stand strong. In fact, one Turkish pastor, after those events, one Turkish pastor said, when he was asking for Christians around the world to pray, he said, please pray for the church in Turkey. Don't pray for an end to persecution, but pray rather for perseverance in the face of persecution. Wow. And yet I hear Christians today say, well, I don't talk at work because we're not allowed to speak about religion. I might lose my job if I speak about if I speak of my faith at work. Who made that rule? What happened to the, the being willing to accept the reproach of the name of Christ? If it's the will of God for you to suffer, then so be it. Losing your job is a lot less than losing your life. 
And so the text finishes, and we have just we're running out of time. But let me just finish with reading what it says in verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What is Christ saying there? I believe his point is this. He's saying, you know, judgment's going to begin, first of all, with Christians. He said, that, but listen, if you cannot stand up under the judgment of men, if you wither before the persecutions and the attacks of men, if you give in when you're being reproached for the name of Christ before men, how will you hold up under the scrutiny of Almighty God? And so Peter says this is a very real challenge for every believer. Now, again, here in America, we are so favored. I think we've kind of been lulled into, into a stupor, lulled into a certain lethargy because we don't face the extreme persecutions. And so we kind of accept, we kind of make compromises for the smaller persecutions that do come up at times. And so often, too often, we avoid those by giving in, by being quiet. And so the Lord says in verse 19, he finishes up by saying, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. We can trust the Lord no matter what he, he leads us to face. Whatever the dark, uh, the, the deep waters that we need to go through, he will be there with us. He will help us through just like he did those three young men in the fiery furnace. Our trust need not waver. And as we stand faithful, even when we first trial, face trials and persecution, as we stand faithful, his name will be exalted, he will be glorified, and, and people will take notice. The testimony will be more powerful because of being faithful in trials. But I'll tell you what, we need God's grace for that, don't we? And so we need to ask him, his strength, his power, to remain faithful no matter what God's going to bring us through this week, this month, this year, to stand firm for him. Let's close in prayer.